Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles where we are going to be looking together at verses 44 through 50. That is Acts chapter 7 verses 44 through 50 and you can find that passage on either page 1077 in your pew Bibles or on page 40 in your Acts journals. While you're making your way there this morning, let me remind you of where we are in our look together at this book of Acts. We are now nearing the end of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, where he is, of course, on trial for his life, for speaking against the land, speaking against Moses and the law, and speaking against the temple. And as I've mentioned to you several times now, this really Uh, is not so much of a defense against these charges as it is an indictment against Israel and the Sanhedrin for always learning and yet never truly knowing anything at all. Stephen has told them, these men, that they have missed the point of Abraham and the promise. They have missed the point of Joseph and the patriarchs. They had even missed the point of Moses and the law, which we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. Last week I mentioned to you that Stephen's answer now sort of pivots here upon verse 37. It really is, in fact, the application of everything that he said leading up to this point. Jesus Christ is truly the full culmination of the promise of God. And Stephen is letting them know that none of this originated with him. Moses said it too. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear. Those are the words of Moses. And so as he's already done with Abraham, the promise, and the patriarchs, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that they do not know and they do not understand Moses and the law either. And the reason that he gives them for it undoubtedly raised the temperature in that room that day just a little bit. Why did they not know, according to Stephen? They were idolaters. You understand his accusation is that they were given to idolatry because they were wicked. Their fathers, under the stress of the wilderness and the reality and the weight of their own sin, longed in their hearts to go back to Egypt. They did not turn to the God who had so miraculously delivered them through signs and wonders at the hands of Moses. The very Moses whose honor, Stephen says, you think you are defending, you are dishonoring by missing entirely the point of everything he said and did by the grace of Almighty God. The truth is, you hate the Word of God, and you hated the prophets who spoke it. Stephen is reversing roles here a bit, and surely you've seen it. Though he himself is the one that is on trial for his life for blasphemy, they are the ones who should have known better and who are guilty of everything they accuse him of. They are the ones who have dishonored Moses and the law by making an idol out of the very idea of Moses. They they become enraged, of course, at the insinuation from Stephen. 
And they will eventually kill Stephen for his words. They are outraged, and that rage has been boiling over with every word Stephen has spoken since the moment he began this discourse. Beloved, I told you last week, that is precisely what the gospel does. To the one who has been called by the grace of God, it is sweet, sweet relief as that one is led to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That one can lay their burden down. But to another, it is but fuel for a fire that is already raging out of control. These men prefer idols to the God who is. They prefer Egypt to the tedious journey to the promised land. They prefer shadow to substance. And because of it, they stop well short of the promise and what the promise is truly all about. They hate to be confronted by their sins, so they look longingly back towards Egypt. And what was in Egypt? That they would so long to go back to Egypt to leave the desperate situation of their freedom in the wilderness and long to go back to Egypt. What was in Egypt? Slavery, oppression, the senseless murder of their children, whips and chains. Beloved, do you understand? What a vivid picture of the absolute illogical nature of sin. Slavery was easier than being stuck out there in the wilderness, munching on manna for yet another dreary day. Bondage was more welcome than deliverance because deliverance, after all, was proving to be a little bit too uncomfortable. The gods were much less demanding back there in Egypt. They had no eyes to see my sin. They had no ears to hear my sin. No mouth to ever speak of my sin or to speak against my sin. Take me back to the idols in slavery because it's easier. That's what idolaters do. They stop short of the Lord Jesus Christ and they make idols of the shadows that only and always existed to point to their ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ. And Stephen has been making that case the whole time. He took their accusations that had been falsely leveled against him and he showed them that it was they who dishonored all of these things. They dishonored Abraham in the promise by neglecting to trust Almighty God for the culmination of that promise. They were not even looking for it. They dishonored Joseph and the patriarchs because they had failed to see the mighty hand of God in his providence and using what Joseph's brothers meant for evil and turning it for their good. Their God was too small. God would save them by the hand of the one that they wanted to leave for dead and sold into slavery. They had dishonored Moses and the law by failing to see that Moses was not the end of the law and its purpose, but the beginning. 
The law would be the schoolmaster to take the people of God by the hand and lead them into the arms of Jesus Christ. The righteous one. And beloved, we spoke at length last week about how we can avoid idolatry in our own lives. I'm not going to rehash it all again this morning, but we talked about it in Sunday school, right? We must know the Word of God. And not just little devotional pieces of it separated from the context of everything else. Not one testament over another testament. We must know the Word of God as a whole. And we must see Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His gospel, at the very center of all of it. We must know it and trust God. We must believe it. We must live in light of it. Because it truly is God's revelation to us. And when we see it for what it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will long for it. We desire it. We know it. And by the grace of God, we will guard our hearts from idolatry by knowing and embracing the substance over the shadows. Now this morning, Stephen is going to show them yet more ways that they had truly missed the forest for the trees and living godly lives. They did not understand Joshua, David, Solomon, or even the very temple that they are accusing Stephen of speaking against. So please, if you've not already done so, look with me at your Bibles at the seventh chapter of the book of Acts and follow along as I read verses 44 through 50. Hear now the word of our Lord. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look now to your word, we pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds this morning of all of those things that distract us in this life. May we give our full attention to your word and hearing that word through the power of your spirit. May we be transformed by that word to live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Stephen <clears throat> ramps up here, for his very stern rebuke towards these men of the Sanhedrin and all that they stand for, he moves rather quickly from Moses to Joshua and Canaan to David to Solomon and the temple. And in doing so, he really is presenting a very thorough case against them being idolatrous in both their natures and their practice. They were content with the shadows themselves and because of it, they had stopped well short of the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So once again, Stephen helps to clarify how little they know, how little they understand their own history. Their foolish, false indictment of him served to prove it. And so he goes back to what God had revealed in his word as the measure by which we measure all things. And looking at this text this morning, I want us to see three primary things here. First, we need to see what God has clearly said. We need to know what God had revealed about these things. Secondly, we need to see what the people of God did with that revelation. And thirdly, I believe we need to see what the result of that action truly was. And finally, I would like for us to see, that is, I would like for us to see what we, that is you and I, need to do with that information. So to dig in this morning, look with me at verse 44. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Stephen says, in essence, look, before we can really even begin to talk about this temple, we must start at the beginning of God's organized and ordained house of worship, which was not the temple, but the tabernacle in the wilderness. Once again, Stephen rightly starts with what God had said regarding the matter at hand, the temple. So he starts with what God had said. God had instructed Moses to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that he had been shown on the mountain. God gave to Moses the pattern for the tabernacle. He told him the design. He spoke to him of its intricacies, the colors and the curtains and the courts. He gave Moses the dimensions of everything. He even gave to Moses the design for the tools or the implements of the tabernacle that were to be used within it. The lampstand and the table and and what the showbread was. All of those things in that first part of the tabernacle. And in the second part of the tabernacle, petitioned off by a great veil, was the Holy of Holies. Or as we read in Hebrews, the holiest of all. And in it were the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold on every side. In it were the golden pot filled with manna, the staff of Aaron which budded, and the two tables of the covenant, or the law. And above it were, of course, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat on the top of the Ark. It was all very detailed, very ornate, very purposeful. However, though ornate, it was designed with an important purpose in mind. Do you know what it was? Its design was to be transitory. It was not meant to stay in one place. It was designed to be picked up and moved. It was designed to be on the move. All the holy things like the Ark of the Covenant were designed so as not to need man's dirty hands all over them. There were tools and implements that were to be used to keep the stain of men's hands off of the Ark. You know, you think of Uzzah reaching out to steady the Ark with his dirty hand. 
these snuffed out. These were holy things. It was meant to be moved. And Stephen is pointing that out here very clearly in the text. It's not only, it not only moved with Israel in their wilderness wandering, but it went with Israel and it went with them and Joshua into the land of Canaan. The land of promise, the land promised to their fathers, the land flowing with milk and honey. It was designed to move with the people of God. And it moved with them into the land of promise. And the Gentiles, Stephen says, were driven out before them, though we know it wasn't all of the Gentiles. And so they were there with the tabernacle made from God's own intricate design, and it was never meant to be the end. Do you understand? Do you know what I mean by that? It served a purpose, but it was a means to an end and not the end itself. God's revelation is progressive. In other words, things became more and more clear as time marched on and God brings things or brings the promises closer to fruition. We see that very clearly in Scripture, right? You know, I had it explained to me once in seminary a long time ago. We need to picture a, a timeline of biblical revelation, right? Picture in your mind a timeline of biblical revelation. And those on the Old Testament side of the promise are straining to look to the far side of the line, to the future, if you will. And for them, it is a little bit like looking through a giant telescope that has been flipped backwards. Have you ever done that in your own childhood curiosity? You look through the big lens instead of the small lens? What happens when you look through the big lens? Well, if you look through the big lens of the telescope, everything gets smaller. In fact, if you're looking off into the distance... Objects appear to be so minuscule as to be very, very difficult to make out at all. However, on the other side of that line are those who have witnessed or those who through witnesses know the revelation of Jesus Christ as the full culmination of the promise. They know about the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord and all of his work for us. And for them... Looking back through history, all of those things that were hazy are brought more and more into a much sharper focus. And we can begin to see Christ in all of it. The tabernacle, the temple, the implements. They all serve to point the people of God to a much greater reality that was still yet to come. Truly, we do not have time this morning to dig in too deep here, but beloved, I hope you will. Because the Bible comes alive when you do. Look at these shadows and see the clear way that they point you towards the true substance standing behind them, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, on this day, in this trial, these men of the Sanhedrin, and many in Israel for that matter, stopped well short of ever seeing Jesus. 
And what happens when the shadow becomes more desirable than the substance that it serves to direct your gaze towards? Well, we've seen it here. Idolatry happens. We worship the creature and not the creator. We worship the things provided and not the great provider behind them. Religious implements designed for worshiping the God who is become religious trinkets designed to make me feel better about me. Shadow over substance. It's like, as I've said many times, eating the husk that tells you that corn is present and throwing out the cob and the kernel. It's the sign over the thing signified. Now, maybe you're thinking this morning, I, I don't know, Steve, how do you know? that that's what their fathers did. Well, what did they do with the tabernacle? When at last they became a real kingdom with a real king and a real palace and a real place. What did they do? What did David do? He sought permission to build a more permanent place. Now, Let me clarify the point here. I'm not trying to make the case that Stephen is now indeed dissing the temple and deserving of whatever he gets. That's not what I'm saying. God allowed the temple, but he didn't command it. He didn't come to the people with it. They came to him. A static temple. Man wanted permanence. His presence was there at least in the beginning, though not in the same way as the tabernacle. Stephen is going after them again for missing the point of the temple entirely. They equated words spoken against the temple with words spoken against God himself. And in this case, it was not the same thing. They wanted permanence and glory. David wanted to build a temple for God to reside in and to rest in forever. But the tabernacle, was never meant to be forever. It pointed to another. Ultimately, it pointed to the heavenly sanctuary where the blood of Christ became, came to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Do you remember what happened when Jesus Christ, upon the cross, breathed his last dying, gasping breath and was ushered into the arms of death? Well, several things happened, if you know your Bible. I'm focused in on one. What happened in the temple? The veil separating the first place from the second place, the holiest of all, the holy of holies, was torn in two. Ripped from top to bottom. Why? Why would the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat of Almighty God no longer be guarded, no longer be separated from the people by a curtain. Because the sacrifice had come. Not the little sacrifices, the one they pointed towards. Not the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice that all of creation had been craning its collective neck towards in eager anticipation was offered. 
And the throne of God's mercy was open to all who are called to come and receive the blessing of that sacrifice. Redemption. Reconciliation. Salvation. Transgressions are forgiven now in Christ. Sins are now removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Do you know that measurement, the east from the west? It's too far to calculate. And now, we are now, through union with Christ, by faith, made holy in Jesus Christ. God's mercy is open to his people. His grace has been poured out. We are now righteous in Christ. We now have life in Christ. Do you understand, beloved? The temple was never the end. It was but a door on the path to the end. Christ is the end. Do you see him? These men seated in judgment over Stephen this day did not see him. They were content with the shadow. They were eating the husk, the stuff. They made idols of everything. God told David no on the temple. He said another would build it, one who was not such a man of blood like David, his son Solomon. And he did build it. And it was glorious. But even Solomon was wise enough to know that it was not the end. That God would not be held there. That God was not confined to a temple made with man's hands. He said so himself, and he wasn't the only one. Stephen takes him to the words of Isaiah, chapter 66, to prove it. Isaiah, speaking the word of the Lord, says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or what place, what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all things? God is not now, nor has he ever been confined to a building, the creation of men. He's not tied to a zip code in Jerusalem. He says to them, look up. Do you see the heavens? That's his throne. The earth, that's his footstool. Can you create something bigger and better than that? Your God is too small. God is not confined to your work. And he's certainly not tied to a building. Stephen has been making the case all along. He's been making this case all along that God is with his people. He was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph and his family in Egypt. He was with Moses in Egypt and in the Midian wilderness. In fact, it was there that he called the land under Moses' feet holy ground. It was holy because God was there. God had said that he would be with his people. He had ordained the construction of a transitory place of worship to move where he himself led them to move. 
It even allowed a more permanent structure to be erected for him under the reign of Solomon, whom God had made wiser than all other men. And for those that were content with but the husk of religion, it was all that they would ever need. Because they wanted idols. They wanted shadows and not substance. Why? Because ultimately, they wanted autonomy. You understand what I mean by that? They wanted silence, not God's words. They wanted religions, a religion like all the nations around them, but they did not want to give their God their heart. They wanted to be gods unto themselves. They wanted to go through the motions when it suited them, but they did not desire God's words. Do you see? They hated the word of God, and because of that hatred raging in their idolatrous hearts, they killed the prophets. They killed the Christ. And they were about to commence killing his bride, the church. That's that's where this is going. They were not defenders of God's honor. They fancied themselves, they were not the defenders they fancied themselves to be. They were, in fact, his enemies. And their actions in light of the clear Holy Spirit work going on in the church of Jesus Christ, moving them to rage instead of tears of joy, proved it. The accusers were guilty of all of the things that they were charging Stephen with. And Stephen, and this is sobering, Stephen is willing to die to give them one final chance to hear the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whom they had stopped well short of in their own vain pursuit of religion masked as fidelity to the God who is. God had revealed that Christ was the culmination. The people had by and large rejected that and settled instead for the shells, the shadows that were meant to point the people to Jesus. And Stephen is really going to let them have it, beginning in verse 51, which we're going to look at next week. But for this morning, the question arises, what do we do with that information? We know what God has said. We saw how the people reacted. What does it mean for us? Let me begin by saying I think it would take a whole lot of blindness to see absolutely no parallels here with our own lives and our own time. How does this apply to us? After all, we have no delusions about the temple, do we? I mean, I know enough about the gospel to not be carried away with something so primitive as idolatry, right? I know that it is Christ's sacrifice that supplies the only blood that will ever truly suffice for me. I trust Jesus with the reins of my life. I will try to just repeat what I... I'm going to try here to not just repeat what I said last week about the gospel and theology that seems to be so prevalent in the evangelical church today. The gospel and. The gospel and this or that thing make up the substance of my salvation. I'm not going to say it all again, but I do think it absolutely applies. This morning, I want to close with this warning, beloved. 
please, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, please do not underestimate the ability of your own heart to produce idols at a staggering rate. John Calvin rightly said, the heart of man is an idol factory. And it is. Look at all the peripheral things that become the things for folks in the Christian life. In some churches, it's all about the miraculous gifts. And that becomes the heart and soul of Christianity in those circles. And we say, not us. We're not that. It can become all about your way of life. How modest is your appearance? How wholesome is the food you eat? How homeschooly is your homeschool? And it's not just the outliers. I see people make idols of anything and everything. Eschatology. If you're not careful, it takes the place of Jesus Christ as the lens through which you interpret all of God's word. And it doesn't get to be that lens. Only Christ can be your hermeneutic. I've seen it happen with sex and gender. I've even seen it happen with the doctrines of grace and the law. There is no end to the depths that our hearts can plummet. And Stephen's point is that all of it, all of it is about Jesus. He's the culmination of the promise. He's the great high priest that all of the other priests only existed to point towards. He is the lamb. You say, well, which lamb? Almost all of them, right? He's the one caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah when Abraham's about to slay his son. And God says, Abraham, hold up. I'll provide the lamb. I'll provide the sacrifice. He's the one who was slain in the Passover. The lamb whose blood must cover you to escape the coming judgment. He is the one who is reigning upon his glorious throne in Revelation, victorious over sin, death, and the devil. The lamb on his throne reigning for eternity. It is Jesus. All of it points to him in his fullness. Do you rejoice in the revelation of Jesus Christ this morning? Do you long for his words? Do you long for his sweet communion? Do you long for his mercy? Do you long for life in him through God's gift of faith? Because the veil has been torn in two by the grace of God. The mercy seat is open. Indeed, his work is finished. Will you run to him? Or will you stop short of Jesus for anything else along the way? Something a little more tangible to you right now. Something you could add to him to make him a little better. Something that will, you know, allow you your own fair share of at least some of the glory. Will you embrace him? Will you embrace this Christ? Will you worship him and will it be your joy to do it? Not only this morning, but every day of your life. Beloved, behold the Lamb of God.
come to take away the sin of the world? Will you bow before King Jesus and find sweet relief for all that truly ails you in this life? You know what he asked you to bring? Your sin and your shame. And he will clothe you in the splendor of his righteousness. And you'll be covered for eternity. Will you come? Come to Jesus, I pray. Amen.